bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, September 28th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of writer and abolitionist David Walker. This is the first human in history that we've covered where their birthday is a bit in question, and this is going to come up again throughout the next year from time to time. It's almost always in connection with a person of color, usually born to an enslaved parent. David's birthday is listed as September 28th on Wikipedia, but other sites say this may be more of a guess than a fact. Regardless, he definitely deserves to be talked about and honored. So for argument's sake, we're going to say that he was born on September 28th in Wilmington, North Carolina. After researching David's life, I am genuinely pissed I never learned about him in school. This guy was a revolutionary. He was the Black Panther Party Malcolm X of the early 1800s. He only lived for 33 years, dying under kind of mysterious circumstances, which we will go over later. But in that time, he wrote an impassioned call to arms for enslaved people that was viewed for a time as, quote, the most notorious document in America. He sparked fear in the hearts of white enslavers, and he let his light shine as bright as possible for the three decades that he graced the earth. David Walker was born a loophole. His father was enslaved, but his mother was a free woman of color. And thanks to an English royal colony law that was carried over into the 1800s, a child took on the emancipatory status of its birth mother, meaning that if the father was enslaved but the mother was free, the child was freeborn. Likewise, if father was free but mother was enslaved, the child became property of the enslaver as soon as it took its first breath. David's mother was free, unlike his father, so he fell into the legal loophole known as partis sequitur ventrum, that which is brought forth follows the womb. That's some handmaid's tale nonsense if I ever heard it. Even though he was technically free, the horrors of slavery were all around him. As a child, he witnessed a boy being forced to whip his mother to death. He later wrote that even as a child, he thought, If I remain in this bloody land, I will not live long. I cannot remain where I must hear slaves' chains continually and where I must encounter the insults of their hypocritical enslavers. Growing up, he would take walks along the wharfs where the decapitated heads of captured runaway slaves were propped on poles along the waterfront. In his late teens, he moved to Charleston, which was considered a haven for free people of color. He became involved with the civil rights activities uh, associated with the African Methodist Episcopal Church. When he was 19, he moved to Boston, where slavery was illegal. He married Eliza Butler on February 23, 1826. She came from an established free family in the area. During his time in Boston, he supported his family by running a used clothing store near the wharfs. In 1828, he and a few other clothing merchants would be accused of selling stolen merchandise. There are no records of the outcome of the court case. It was probably dismissed because there would have been a record of fines paid or jail time served had he been found guilty. David was an ardent and outspoken critic of slavery. He aided runaway slaves and he helped destitute people of color as much as his finances would allow. He founded the Massachusetts General Colored Association, which actively opposed the new push from the South to deport free black people back to Africa. There was this organization called the American Colonization Society. They were gathering up as many people of color as possible and deporting them back to Africa, believing that they would stand a better chance in Africa. This was actually the start of what is now the country of Liberia on the western coast of Africa. It was an easy location for dropping off people brought over on ships. 
Walker also stood up to Thomas Jefferson, who, aside from owning 600 people throughout his life, spoke openly and frequently about his perception of the inferiority of people of color. David publicly called him out, saying, I say that unless we refute Mr. Jefferson's arguments respecting us, we will only establish them. His complete and total rejection of the notion of inferiority based on race came to an eloquent summit in his published magnum opus, Walker's Appeal, in four articles, together with a preamble, to the colored citizens of the world, but in particular, and very expressly, to those of the United States of America, written in Boston, state of Massachusetts, September 28, 1829. This was shortened for brevity's sake in common vernacular to just Walker's Appeal. This document was no less than a direct call to action, a fiery cry for black people to rise up regardless of risk and fight for freedom, to the death if necessary. It also pointedly called out white Americans for perpetuating and profiting from slavery, and it demanded that they cease all enslavement-related practices and publicly denounce it as the abhorrent abuse that it was. On the very first page of his appeal, David straight up called it like it was, saying, We colored people of these United States are the most degraded, wretched, and abject set of beings that ever lived since the world began. And I pray God that none like us ever may live until time shall be no more. At the time of the pamphlet's publication, there were some anti-slavery groups in place that sought to make compromises and ask for sort of piecemeal civil rights. But these groups often couched their demands in an era of humility or subservience. No one was talking to the public like David Walker was. No concessions, no compromises, no kowtowing, just straight up calling people of color to rise up and white people to stop being racist idiots. It needed to be said, and he was brave enough to say it. It was literally the most dangerous thing he could do with his life at that time. As American Marxist historian Herbert Apthaker said, to be an abolitionist was not for the faint-hearted. The slaveholders represented for the first half of the 19th century the most closely knit and most important single economic unit in the nation. There are millions of bondsmen and millions of acres of land compromising an investment of billions of dollars. This economic might had its counterpart in political power, given its possessors' dominance within the nation and predominance within the South. White Southern enslavers had ensured the repression of black voices in democracy with the Three-Fifths Compromise of 1787, in which the Constitutional Convention decided that only three out of every five black people were considered humans. This gave the South 30% more seats in Congress and an additional 30% of the electoral votes, which they would not have gotten if they said black people didn't count at all. So in essence, they were counting three-fifths of the black people as humans, which allowed the white Southerners more power in the government, but they were not allowing people of color to actually vote, so their voices went unheard. This was yet another way that white people were subjugating and exploiting the enslaved. The South thereby controlled the government, and they ensured that Southern, pro-slavery, men were elected to presidential and federal posts often. The black voice and vote was being systematically silenced, and David understood that if people of color were being prevented from making meaningful change at a legal level, it would be necessary to rise up in the fields and farms and streets. His appeal called out people of color who did nothing more than pray for their freedom, challenging them to, quote, never make an attempt to gain freedom or natural right from under our cruel oppressors and murderers until you see your ways clear, and when that hour arrives and you move, be not afraid or dismayed. He was encouraging black people to not wait on God to free them, but to take their liberation and their destinies into their own hands, understanding that the results may mean bloodshed or death, but that continuing to live in slavery was an even worse and more prolonged death. David told his fellow people of color that the time to take responsibility was now, reminding them that this was just as much their country as it was the white man's, even more so, saying, 
America is more our country than it is the whites. We have enriched it with our blood and tears. He further asserted in his pamphlet that education for people of color was of the utmost importance, as knowledge not only provided options, but that nothing terrified enslavers like an educated black man. David instructed those who could read his pamphlet to help those who could not, telling them that all people of color had a duty to educate and assist one another. He called out preachers who used the Bible as a weapon to teach subservience and normalize enslavement, reminding African Americans that true Christianity was one in which God saw all of his people as equal. In speaking to white Americans, he assured them that he did not see them as being lost causes and thought that they could be redeemed should they only reflect honestly on their values and their actions. He cautioned, though, that white enslavers did not deserve to be heaped with praise for occasionally freeing an enslaved person, saying, quote, Whites gave nothing to blacks upon manumission except the right to exercise the liberty they had immorally prevented them from doing so in the past. They were not giving blacks a gift, but rather returning what they had stolen from them and God. To pay respect to whites as the source of freedom was thus blasphemous to God, because it denied that he was the source of all virtues and the only one with whom one was justified in having a relationship of obligation and debt. Some historians have even credited Walker with laying a foundation for black nationalism as he brought up self-government of slash for slash by people of color, although other historians think that this is stretching his intentions a bit and that he was actually making more of an impassioned cry for equality and not separate governance. His pamphlet made its way through the circulatory system of the Atlantic coast via civil rights activists and churches and various black community organizations. The South, well, the South just lost it. Black people found distributing or reading or in possession of the pamphlet were thrown in jail. Southern newspapers called it slander, and a bounty was put on David's head. $10,000 if he was brought to the South alive, and $1,000 if his corpse was brought. Slaves and people of color were routinely rounded up and whipped, beaten, or just straight up killed to try and drive thoughts of emancipation out with fear. White slave owners were afraid of a repeating of the St. Domingo Massacre in the States. Quick sidebar on this. So the French had occupied Haiti, and enslaved people began to understand that they clearly outnumbered the French colonizers. So in August of 1791, a plantation foreman named Bookman managed to gather the support of 40,000 enslaved people to turn against the French. It went south really quick. Once the enslaved rose up, they crashed down with fury upon the French, torturing and raping and killing any white person they saw, including women and children. Property was destroyed and much of the island was set on fire. Of the 30,000 white people that had been there, 20,000 had been murdered or fled. 10,000 of the 40,000 mulattoes on the island were killed and over 150,000 slaves were dead. This was what white Southerners saw happening if David's pamphlet gained support and traction among black people. As far as what free people of color and abolitionists thought of the pamphlet, they didn't care much for it either. They thought it was too radical, too extreme, too inflammatory. There was a fear of brutal backlash from the South against the black community. A lot of free people of color had family that were still enslaved, and they despaired as to how they would be treated if their enslaver found that a relative of theirs had been reading and supporting this hotly contested pamphlet. There were some people who were inspired by his words, though, including the revolutionary Nat Turner, whose rebellion a year later was directly inspired by the pamphlet. We will be covering Nat Turner on October 2nd, by the way. Many abolitionists of the day were still waiting for God to step in and free the enslaved and punish the enslavers, so they felt that Walker's words were too impetuous and that he should take a more passive yet hopeful stance on slavery, as was the common feeling at the time. His pamphlet was perhaps most 
appreciated posthumously, being credited as an inspiration by such future civil rights leaders as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois. Walker died at age 33 on August 6, 1830, collapsing as he walked into his store. His cause of death was listed as tuberculosis, but there are some theories that he was actually poisoned by someone who objected to what he was doing, and God knows there was a lot of people like that. Um, adding weight to the tuberculosis theory, though, is the fact that his 21-month-old daughter, Lydia, died the week before from some type of a lung infection as well. Eliza was pregnant at the time, and their son, Edward, would be born a few months after the death of his father and sister. Edward would go on later in life to become one of the first black attorneys in Massachusetts. David was buried in a segregated South Boston cemetery in an unmarked grave, so we don't know exactly where he was laid to rest. His distraught wife was unable to keep up with their house payments, becoming homeless with young Edward shortly after the tragedy of David and Lydia's deaths. Three years later, she remarried a man named Alexander Dusen, who also had a young son. They would go on to have a daughter together who died at five months of the same lung ailment that claimed the lives of Lydia and David. My sources today were the Cape Fear Historical Institute, Wikipedia, fair play to the author of that article, it's very well done, PBS, Africans in America, and the David Walker Memorial Project. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of David Walker. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Anne Bancroft, pioneering teacher and Arctic adventurer. See you then.